I've said before, nothing really ever disappears. Matter can't be created or destroyed. But there's an exception worth mentioning. Antimatter. It works like this. Every particle, like a proton or electron, has a corresponding antiparticle. When they collide, they're both annihilated. They vanish into a burst of energy. There's one outlier to antimatter, though. The Majorana particle, because it contains its own antiparticle. Meaning, it can annihilate itself. And maybe it's a coincidence, but the scientist this particle is named after tried to do the exact same thing. One day, with no warning or explanation, he sent his goodbye letters, grabbed his passport, and wrote himself out of his own story. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case, ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet the most brilliant mind you've probably never heard of. In 1938, he was a leading visionary in nuclear physics. And then one day, he got on a ship and was never heard from again. His name is Atore Majorana. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The only way to understand Atore Majorana's disappearance is to understand Atore Majorana, which is a difficult thing to do. Atore's mind is like this deep, never-ending ocean that no one was really ever able to penetrate. Even his closest friends and family struggled to know what was happening under the surface. All anyone saw was his shyness and sensitivity. He was a mix of pessimism and dry humor, punctuated by flashes of brilliance. And he was brilliant. There's one story that I think sums this up better than anything. In 1927, Atore is a 21-year-old engineering student at the University of Rome. 
He's not only the smartest kid in his class, he's also smarter than half the teachers. And he's hopelessly bored. So one day his friend asks, why not ditch engineering for physics? He takes a Tory to see the head of the Physics Institute, Enrico Fermi, who was just 25, barely older than his students. Fermi shows Atore what he's working on, a statistical model of the atom. This is cutting edge, groundbreaking stuff. At the time, atomic structure is still a huge mystery. They chat about it for a while and Atore leaves. But the next morning he comes back, pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket and compares Fermi's work with his own calculations that he'd drawn up the night before. They're exactly the same. Atore is shocked. Not that he got the correct answers, but that Fermi did. He tells the professor, huh, your formula works, and then just walks out of the building without another word. A few days later, he transfers to the Physics Institute. From day one, Atore is by far the brightest mind in the department. He's so exacting and critical, his fellow students call him the Grand Inquisitor. But like a lot of high achievers, Atore's judgment falls hardest on himself. And this is another reason why he's so hard to understand. No matter what earth-shattering discoveries Atore makes, he refuses to publish his work. For instance, in 1932, a completely new particle is discovered, the neutron. Almost immediately after hearing the news, Atore sits down and develops the world's first accurate model of the nucleus. But he doesn't get credit for the discovery because he won't publish it. His excuse is he doesn't want anyone to see it until it's perfect. A few months later, another physicist comes out with a theory that's almost identical to Atore's. He ends up winning a Nobel Prize for the discovery, and when Atore finds out, he just laughs. That attitude mystifies his colleagues, who aren't even really his colleagues anymore, because by this point, Atore has graduated, and he doesn't actually work at the University of Rome. He's just hanging around doing research for fun. He doesn't care about sharing his discoveries. He doesn't even care about getting a job. He's from a rich family, so he's not hard-pressed for money. Yet for someone with a mind like Atore's, this total lack of ambition is unnerving. It's like there's something eating away at him, some inexplicable fear of exposing himself to criticism, or of exposing himself at all. His whole life, he's been painfully shy and aloof, and now it's more apparent than ever that no matter what he's working on, he'll always decide it's too flawed or too obvious or too boring to bother showing anyone. As one of his friends put it, Atori felt everybody was stupid, himself included. This gave him a feeling of emptiness. And in the summer of 1933, something finally snapped. Atore is about to turn 27. He's been doing research in Germany all year, and he's apparently having a pretty good time. Until suddenly, with no clear trigger, he becomes moody and withdrawn. Atore pushes everyone away, his colleagues, his family, his friends. When the semester is over in August, he moves back into his family's house in Rome and shuts himself up in his bedroom. 
and for the next four years, he rarely leaves. Atori barely talks to anyone. He barely eats. He doesn't cut his hair. He works around the clock, but not on physics. Instead, he's studying philosophy, politics, theology, war game strategies. As usual, he doesn't publish a single paper on any of these subjects. His family obviously realizes something's wrong, but they're not really the type to talk about things. The Majorana household is kind of a pressure cooker of high expectations. Their mother is, let's say, a strong personality, and all the kids are terrified of crossing her. The oldest son, Salvatore, is a philosopher who's obsessed with religion. Luciano, who's just a year older than Atore, is a hugely successful engineer. The youngest, Maria, is an accomplished pianist. And to add to that pressure cooker, the father dies a year after Atore's breakdown begins. The point is, in a family like this, locking yourself in a room and reading Schopenhauer for four years is barely unusual. As long as Atori keeps up the appearance of doing work, any red flags that he's unwell are going to be quietly ignored. Eventually, most of his friends stop trying to visit, except for an old colleague from the University of Rome, Eduardo Amaldi. Eduardo keeps coming over against Atori's wishes. He tries to update Atori on what Fermi's group is working on. Nuclear reactions. But Atori doesn't want anything to do with it. All he says is, physics is on the wrong path. We're all on the wrong path. Atori never explains what he means by that. As far as anyone can tell, he's not even working on physics anymore. It seems like he's abandoned academia altogether, which makes this next move even more surprising. In the fall of 1937, there's a competition for a physics professorship, and Enrico Fermi is appointed to the judging panel. He urges Atori to apply, and at the very last minute, Atori finally agrees. For his application, he pulls out some notes that have been languishing in his drawer for years. Those notes, which almost never saw the light of day, became the theory that Atore is most known for, the Majorana fermion, a particle that's matter and antimatter at the same time. This paper is so groundbreaking, it earns him a full professorship at the University of Naples. The next January, after more than four years of isolation, he moves out of his family's house to make one final attempt at a normal life. And on the surface, at least, he succeeds. By all accounts, Atori loves teaching. The moment he steps into the classroom, his face just lights up with excitement. Although his class of five students often don't have a clue what he's talking about. His lectures are way too high level. Regardless, he gets along well with the head of the physics department, Antonio Corelli. Atori settles into a quiet routine, lecturing in the mornings, then working from the hotel he lives in through the evening. Corelli accepts Atori's busyness with a shrug, remembering he was, quote, working on something absorbing, 
which he preferred not to talk about. Whatever that was, we'll never know. Atori never publishes another article. But under the surface, something else was stewing, which speaks to a pattern I've seen. Not just when someone goes missing, but with people in general. Even when someone appears to be putting their life back together, making plans for the future, it's impossible to truly know what they're thinking, feeling, or hiding. You can never know, even after it's too late. So here's what we do know. On the morning of Friday, March 25th, 1938, Atori goes to the university even though he doesn't have a class that day. He flags down one of his students in the hallway and gives her a folder full of lecture notes, including some for lectures he hasn't given yet. The student is confused, but all Atori will say is we'll talk about it later. After that, he walks back to the Hotel Bologna where he's been living. He writes a letter to his boss that says, Dear Corelli, I have come to an inevitable decision. You cannot trace a single hint of selfishness in it, but I do understand the problems that my sudden disappearance may cause to you and the students. I beg your pardon for this too, but most of all, because I have disappointed you, your true friendship, and the fondness you have shown me these months. Please remember me to all those I have met, especially to Shuti, all of whom I will cherish in my heart, or at least until 11 tonight, and possibly even after that. At 5 p.m., Atori leaves the hotel, taking nothing with him except the letter to Corelli and his passport. He mails the letter, and at 10.30 p.m., he boards a ship for Palermo, about 200 miles south on the coast of Sicily. Atori wrote that he would cherish his students in his heart, at least until 11. That's half an hour after the ship leaves port. It's typically assumed that Atori was planning to jump overboard and drown himself. But if that was the plan, something changed. Because when the ship arrives in Palermo the next morning, Atori is still on it. And when he steps on land, the first thing he does is buy a return ticket back to Naples for later that night. He cables the Hotel Bologna and tells them to keep his room for him, and he sends another letter to Corelli via express mail. Dear Corelli, the sea has rejected me. Tomorrow I'll return to the Hotel Bologna, perhaps traveling together with this same letter. I have, however, decided to give up teaching. Don't take me for an Ibsen heroine, because the case is quite different. I'm at your disposal for further details. This letter sounds intentionally cryptic and vague, but it seems like an admission that whatever Atori's plan was, it failed, or he changed his mind. There's one phrase that jumps out at me, don't take me for an Ibsen heroine. It's probably an allusion to playwright Henrik Ibsen's two female characters that die by suicide. So if Atori had planned to take his life, that clearly isn't his intention anymore. Either way, Atori is coming home. That evening, he boards an overnight ferry to Naples. 
but if that's where this story ended, I wouldn't be telling it, would I? This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Monday, March 28th, 1938, and Dottore Majorana doesn't show up for work. Over the weekend, his boss at the Institute of Physics, Antonio Corelli, had received two cryptic letters from Atore. The first he took for a suicide note, even though it didn't explicitly say so. But the second letter said that Atore changed his mind and was on his way back to Naples. But now it's Monday, and he's nowhere to be found. Corelli goes to the hotel where Atore was living, the one he said he was on the way back to but he isn't there. The staff confirms he hasn't been seen there since Friday. Corelli doesn't want to panic unnecessarily, so before sounding the alarm, he calls a mutual friend who knows Atore far better than he does, Atore's old professor, Enrico Fermi. Fermi is in his lab at the University of Rome. He tells Corelli nobody there has seen or heard from Atore in a couple weeks which isn't really surprising, until Corelli reads him the letters he received over the phone. And even though the letters are cryptic, Fermi knows that something is seriously wrong. He immediately calls the Majoranas. Atore's younger sister Maria answers the line. Fermi asks if Atore is with them, and she replies, no, he's in Naples. Why? When Atori's family realizes he's missing, they assume the best. He must be in Palermo. Maybe his ship was delayed, or he decided to stay for a little bit longer. But Atori only knows two people in Palermo, and neither one has heard from him. Word spreads quickly, and pretty soon, it's clear that no one has heard from Atori since Saturday, which seems like it can only mean one thing. But even though suicide is the obvious answer, the Majoranas refuse to even consider it. They've been there during Atore's four-year isolation, and they're convinced that even in his deepest moments of depression, he was never suicidal. He has to be alive somewhere. The next day, Atore's older brothers, Luciano and Salvatore, arrive in Naples and meet up with Carelli. Together, they go to search Atori's room at the Hotel Bologna. Everything looks pretty ordinary. His clothes and books and papers are right where he left them. And there's an envelope on the desk. It's addressed to my family. The letter inside is dated March 25th, the Friday he left Naples. It says, I have just one wish, that you do not wear black. If you wish to mourn me, then do so but not for more than three days. Afterwards, if you can, keep my memory in your hearts and forgive me. 
This letter, just like the others, is full of doublespeak and ambiguous wording. Atori clearly knows that everyone will assume he's dead, but he doesn't say anything to confirm or deny that assumption. It's like he's going out of his way to not leave a single clue behind. But there is one clue, and that's what he took with him. Searching the room, Atori's brothers notice that there are only two things missing, his passport and a considerable amount of cash. Over the past couple months, Atori had withdrawn the equivalent of at least 30,000 US dollars from his bank accounts in Rome and Naples. And none of that money was ever found. Not in his room, not at the bank, not anywhere. Personally, I don't think I'd be getting on a ship with a passport and $30,000 in cash unless I had a destination in mind. A destination that's not the bottom of the sea. Or Palermo, for that matter. Atori wouldn't need a passport to travel within Italy, which only leaves the entire rest of the globe. It's already been three days, and the clock is ticking. Statistically, after 72 hours, it's much less likely that a missing person will be found. And if Atori wanted to leave the country, he could already be gone. The family divides and conquers. One brother rushes to Palermo with nothing to go off of except the letterhead from Atori's second letter, from the Grand Hotel Soleil. All he finds out is that Atori did book a room at the hotel, and that he's not there anymore. Meanwhile, his other brother stays in Naples with Corelli. They talk to the police, but they don't seem to take the case very seriously. There's no sign of foul play, and truthfully, the evidence points to suicide. They assume his body will turn up eventually. Back in Rome, Fermi spends days calling everyone he can think of, with every lead coming up empty. At the brink of losing hope, Fermi tries to explain his frustration to his research assistant. Atori was a genius, on the level of Galileo and Newton. He says, Majorana had what no one else in the world has, but unfortunately, he lacked what is instead common in other men. Plain good sense. The first real piece of evidence isn't discovered until a week later sometime in early April, and it's found by Salvatore Majorana, not the police. The shipping company tells Salvatore that they found Atori's ticket for the return trip from Palermo to Naples, and one of the passengers assigned to his cabin swears that he saw Atore sleeping, all the way until they reached the port in the morning. It seems really unlikely that Atori jumped overboard after that point, because it was broad daylight, and the deck was crowded with people. Which means Atore probably got off the ship, and he might still be in Naples. This other passenger offers one more piece of advice. Perhaps Atore has holed up in a nearby convent. It's happened with even the least religious people. It may be a bold suggestion from a complete stranger, but it's not too far off from the mark. Atori is deeply spiritual, and apparently, while he was living at home for the past four years, his brother Salvatore had gotten him hooked on theology. Did he suddenly decide to become a monk? Probably not. 
but he might have gone on some kind of religious retreat. And it turns out, there's a Jesuit monastery very close to the Hotel Bologna. Atori's brothers go to the monastery and show the priest a picture of Atore. He recognizes him. Sometime in late March or early April, a very agitated young man who looked like a Tory had stopped by and asked if he could try the religious life. The priest told him he could stay there for a few days, but in the long term, he'd have to enter the novitiate, which is a long and complicated process. The young man said, thank you, sorry, and left without another word. With that lead, Atori's brother Luciano spends weeks going door-to-door -door with a photo of Atore, checking every church and convent in and around Naples. He only gets one other positive answer. On April 12th, Atori had visited a convent just south of Naples. Like the monastery, he asked if he could join their religious order. But since this was a convent for female nuns, the answer was no. So he left. In the end, neither of these sightings lead anywhere. But if they're accurate, it means Atori was still in Naples for at least two weeks while his family was searching for him. He must have known everyone was looking for him. He might have even seen the ads the family published in the local newspapers. Atore, your mother and brothers await for you in despair. Please come back. The search has reached a point where it feels more like a manhunt. The Majoranas knock on the door of every church and farmhouse in the southern half of Italy. They badger the police, the government, the Pope. Atori's mother and Enrico Fermi both write to Mussolini himself. In Fermi's letter, he emphasizes how important Atori is to physics and how much he has left to contribute. In response, Mussolini writes on the top of Atori's missing persons file, I want him to be found. But months go by, and the nationwide search by the police turns up nothing. Which does prove one thing. As Mussolini's police chief comments, Corpses can be found. It's the living that disappear. I have to wonder what anyone planned to do if a Tory was found. He's not a criminal. He can't be chained up and dragged back to Naples by force. If he wants to hide, that's his right. But I can't blame his family for feeling like they're owed an explanation. It's the hardest on Luciano. He's a year older than a Tory, but since a Tory skipped a grade, they were in the same class at school. They were in the same engineering program before Atori switched to physics and had the same circle of friends. When they're at home, they still share a bedroom. If anyone should know Atori, it's Luciano. But now he's gone and Luciano can't understand why. He and Salvatore keep searching the countryside for over a year, even after the police give up. They don't stop until one day when Luciano is distracted and upset to the point that while driving, he hits a little girl with his car. Luciano is so shaken up by the accident, he finally decides this can't go on anymore. Wherever Atore is, he doesn't want to be found. 
they chose to respect his decision and stop looking. I can only imagine how difficult this was to accept. For the rest of their lives, the family will have to live with this uncertainty, not knowing where Tori is, or if he's safe or even alive. And most importantly, not knowing why. What was he carrying that was so unbearable the only solution he saw was to leave his entire world behind? We don't know what Atori was working on before he disappeared. Any notes he might have left behind were eventually lost. So it's worth considering what everyone else was working on. I mentioned earlier that during those four years when Atori was in self-imposed exile, his colleague tried to tell him about the experiments Fermi was working on. Atori replied, Physics is on the wrong path. We're all on the wrong path. Those experiments involved nuclear reactions. Fermi realized that when you bombard an atom of uranium with stray neutrons, the reaction produces two new elements that had never been discovered before. When Atori disappeared in 1938, Fermi was about to win a Nobel Prize for discovering these two new elements, which he named Hesperium and Asonium. But Fermi was mistaken. Hesperium and Asonium didn't exist. No one realized it at first, but what Fermi had actually discovered is nuclear fission. When you bombard uranium with more neutrons, it doesn't just absorb them and create a new element. Instead, the nucleus breaks in half, releasing a massive amount of energy. In just a few short years, this is the process that would be used to build the atomic bomb. Did Atori realize this before anyone else? There's no way to know. But if he did, he didn't mention it to anyone. And maybe for good reason. This was just a year before the start of World War II. Hitler was in power in Germany, and he was gaining influence over Italy too. Disaster was on the horizon. If Atori knew how nuclear energy could be weaponized, and how much destruction it could cause, he may have felt some level of responsibility. After all, it was his theories that started Fermi down the path of nuclear physics. Maybe he decided that at this point, the best thing he could do is remove himself from the situation. Of course, this is just a theory, but it's a popular one, because it's really the only theory that could explain Atori's behavior. The truth is, though, the human mind isn't always rational, and mental illness doesn't always need a reason. There were telltale signs that Atori might have been feeling depressed. He could have been pushed to the breaking point by a series of circumstances that, from the outside, don't seem so dramatic. Loneliness, stress, pressure to succeed, an overwhelming sense of alienation from the world. His two months of teaching might have been a last-ditch effort to live a normal life. And when it didn't take, he decided that leaving his old life behind was the only solution. But for a lot of people, that answer felt mundane. Atori's life and work was so exceptional. Whatever knowledge he took with him when he disappeared, it could have changed the course of history. 
That's why, for decades, wild variations keep circulating. Some say he was kidnapped by Russian spies, or killed by the mafia, or secretly working for the Nazis, or he ran off to live as a vagabond or a hermit in some faraway land. Most of these theories don't even merit discussion, but little by little, a few of these stories start to corroborate each other. There are details that match, facts that check out, until eventually, they build into an overwhelming conclusion. Atore is still alive, and he's hiding in the last place anyone would ever look. In 1950, 12 years after Atore's disappearance, a Chilean physicist named Carlos Rivera is visiting Buenos Aires. He's in his room at the boarding house, working on a paper that references the work of Atore Majorana. The owner of the boarding house comes in, catches a glance at the papers, and says, Majorana? But that's the name of a very famous Italian physicist who happens to be a close friend of my son's. Rivera thinks she must be mistaken, but she insists, no, this is the same guy. He doesn't do physics anymore. He's turned to engineering instead. And her son, who's also an engineer, sees him all the time. She also says that according to her son, Atori left Italy because he didn't get along with Enrico Fermi. In fact, he didn't even want to hear Fermi's name anymore. His animosity was partly due to Fermi's role in building the atomic bomb. At that point, the phone rings, the woman leaves to answer it, and Rivera doesn't get another chance to talk to her before he leaves the next day. He's definitely curious, but he doesn't take any of it too seriously until 10 years later, when he's back in Argentina again. This time, Rivera is sitting at a restaurant inside the Hotel Continental. While he waits, he works out some math formulas on a paper napkin. The waiter sees it and says, I know another man with this habit of writing formulas on paper napkins. It's a customer who comes in every now and then for coffee. His name is Atori Majorana. This man was an important physicist who ran away from Italy many years ago. This seems like too much to be a coincidence especially since the Hotel Continental is right next to an engineering college. In fact, the same college the boarding house owner's son attended. And it turns out, Rivera isn't the only one to hear rumors that Atori was in Argentina. Before her death, Blanca de Mora, the wife of Nobel laureate Miguel Angel Astorias, recalled how many people knew Atore in Buenos Aires. She herself met him a few times, and Blanca's sister also confirmed that Atore was a frequent visitor at their friend's house. Again, no hard proof, but there's no obvious reason why any of these people would lie. There's no reason why they would have even heard of Atore Majorana, an only slightly famous physicist from halfway across the globe. And there are a few reasons why Atori might have gone to Argentina. Not only is it far from Italy and the political turmoil that was about to take over Europe, there's also a huge community of Italians in Buenos Aires. 
somewhere around a quarter of the entire population. Most importantly though, there were two transatlantic shipping lines with offices directly between the University of Rome and the Hotel Bologna. A Tory would have walked past them every day. And on Saturday, March 26th, the very day after a Tory left for Palermo, one of those lines had a ship leaving the port of Naples bound for Buenos Aires. A Tory would have narrowly missed that ship since he didn't get back to Naples until dawn the next morning. But there was another departure for South America on April 23rd. That left him with nearly a month to kill. He'd already sent his goodbye letters, so going back to his old life would be painfully awkward. So like any good introvert, he probably hid out at a church or convent until he could jump on the next ship. By the 1980s, this becomes the most popular theory about Atori's disappearance. But there's never any solid proof for decades. That is, until 2008, when one more account surfaces. Francesco Vizzani was one of the many Italians who immigrated to South America. When he arrives in Venezuela in 1955, he quickly makes friends with his fellow expats. That's how he meets Mr. Beanie. Beanie is about 50 years old, very shy, and looks sort of sad. Sometimes he disappears for weeks at a time with no explanation. He's always carrying around notebooks full of complicated math formulas. He never talks about his past. But one day, a mutual friend mentions that Beanie is a scientist. And a famous one at that. They'd met each other in Argentina, where they both lived until a few years earlier. And lo and behold, the friend says that Beanie's real last name is Majorana. Fazani isn't a science guy, so this name doesn't mean anything to him. Not until more than 50 years later, when he sees a TV documentary about Atori Majorana's disappearance. Fazani calls into the program and tells his story. And for the first time, he has proof to back it up. A photo. Beanie never wanted to be photographed, but one day, Vazani convinced him to pose for a picture. It's black and white and pretty grainy, but Vazani sends it to the police in Rome for a facial analysis. They compare it to an old photo of Ettore and find 10 points of recognition between the two photos which is enough to declare that they're almost certainly the same person. In 2015, prosecutors in Rome officially announced that at least from 1955 to 1959, Ettore Majorana was alive and well in Venezuela. Past that, no one can say what happened to him. And maybe we shouldn't try to. Ettore is almost definitely dead by now. If he was still alive, he'd be 115. He'd obviously spent most of his life trying to avoid recognition. In the end, disappearing was his choice. And if his own family could accept that, shouldn't we? Is it fair to search for someone who doesn't want to be found? Is it even fair to tell the stories of people who don't want to be known? I don't have the answers. But I do believe that no matter how well you hide, you can't erase all traces of yourself from the world. 
there's still a gap left behind where you once were. And for the people who love you, your story doesn't end when you walk out of it. It just becomes a story about your absence. Next episode. The fine line between hope and denial becomes even more clear as the search for three of America's most notorious prisoners unfolds. In 1962, Clarence and John Anglin and Frank Morris did the impossible. They escaped Alcatraz. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Kate Gallagher, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.